This podcast is brought to you by Grade from Sixbit. Visit sixbit.co.uk to learn more about how Grade can help you with your grading workload. Welcome to the Sixbit EdTech Podcast. I'm Anjinder. And I'm Austin. And today we're going to talk about the differences between teaching and lecturing. So Austin is a qualified teacher, but he's also a lecturer. He's been teaching in schools and at universities, so he's probably the perfect person to talk about this topic. Uh, absolutely. Slightly biased towards the current position of lecturing over teaching. I, I do much prefer that work, uh, but I do think I have a fairly well-grounded uh, th- thought process around both of them. I think to kick it off, in just like a few sentences, what's your like gut feeling towards both? And then we'll get into some more details. Okay, my, my gut feeling is... Teaching in schools is much more refined than lecturing in terms of pedagogy. Uh, lecturing at universities is certainly more fun for me uh, rather than teaching, possibly because I like the sound of my own voice a bit more than some people do. <laughs> um, but lecturing, again, has its own advantages as well on top of this. I think it's much, it's very well suited to students that are more mature and you know generally at university students have already proven themselves to be good at their subject so they are more independent and can pick up things themselves without having to require uh, really high level pedagogies to help them learn it's interesting that you say that okay so i think the first question i probably want to ask you then around what you just said is the fact that schools usually have exam boards and bodies like ofsted whereas universities do not So how do you think that changes the approach of teaching in both places? So in schools, you have a curriculum that has been designed by uh, an exam board rather than the people teaching it themselves or perhaps the school. And therefore, the, the content is the same for everybody across the country. So you don't have to really worry about um, things being missed off or slipping standards. Everyone's at the same level by the time they finish their GCSEs or their A-levels for that reason. Uh, and, that, and that's a really positive thing. However, as a result of that, it means that individual teachers can be less flexible in what they want to teach. And if they want to go outside the, the, the syllabus, which I think is a great thing for teachers to do when there's time to do it, uh, they have to think very carefully about when it's appropriate to do so so they don't run out of time and not teach the whole, the whole syllabus. Hmm. Uh, whereas at universities, lecturers write their own courses and usually there'll be a set of learning outcomes for the course, but lecturers have a lot more freedom in in what content they think is relevant and they want to teach. So it's much more personalized to that lecturer who wants to teach it. To follow that up a little bit, university courses will probably be accredited by an institution. To give an example, in the United Kingdom, to have an accredited physics degree, you require a check, basically, by the Institute of Physics which requires certain things to be taught. Is that similar or is there still a lot of freedom around that? Uh, no, that's, yeah, so that's similar across uh, essentially all university courses that there should be somebody accrediting it. So there is, there is accountability to those lecturers so they can't just write a really easy course that takes them five minutes to write. You know, they, they have to do something that's meaningful. Um, but there is an awful lot of flexibility. Uh, so the Institute of Physics, for example, is, is a nice one that I know a lot about. Uh, for example, for a physics degree to be accredited by the Institute of Physics, there must be some experimental 
aspect of a physics degree in there. So even if you want to do a degree in theoretical physics, you must experience labs at some point. So that keeps everybody at least having similar experiences across the entire country, no matter what university you go to. But then they'll say, right, you have to teach quantum mechanics and some of this content has to be in there. They don't tell you how you have to teach it. And there's a, there's flexibility on how it's assessed, provided that the level is deemed to be the correct level for the particular year group. And that's often decided by external examiners who are other lecturers from other universities around the country. And most universities will have ex externals come into them and then they'll have their own staff who go to other universities and examine externally there too so it's a it's a peer network yeah okay that definitely makes a lot of sense i think the natural question to ask is which do you think is better would you rather have a little bit more constraint at university or would you rather have more freedom at schools and what would be the downsides of both it's a good question i think it's hard to answer i think if you give schools more freedom because there are so many more schools, uh, and some of these schools are struggling schools and, and failing schools, remember that, that you will accidentally let some, in some places, standards slip. In other places, I think standards could certainly improve. Um, and where you've got schools that, that perform very well, typically grammar schools and independent schools, they often actually use exam boards that are slightly different to everybody else's. So they may teach something called an IGCSE rather than a GCSE. Mm -hmm. uh, and within that, that gives the teachers more flexibility in, in, in how they teach and how they approach the subject uh, compared to the straight GCSE. So I think there are some options there, but they're, they're certainly nowhere near as flexible as what you'd have at university. Sure. Uh, but I think it keeps the schools on the straight and narrow and, and it avoids risk uh, over the entire country of, of schooling. Whereas I think universities have got it correct, actually. I think the peer network uh, gives the accountability to the lecturers. Um, but because there are only a handful of institutions and you know, to, be, to become a, a lecturer is not a, a, certainly not an easy process and it's a, it's a smaller network of people teaching in universities than in schools, that it, that it works there. You mentioned a little bit about the student, the, the cohort at, at universities. So I wanted to like pinpoint that with a, with a particular question. School is mandatory and university is not. And the choice of subject that you take probably has a, a selection bias for interest. And by that, I mean, if you decide to take something at university, there's probably a high probability that you enjoy that subject. Do you think that changes your interactions with the students and the teaching? For me, absolutely. Uh, when you're teaching, I used to teach physics in schools. Half the battle is just trying to get children to be interested in the subject you're doing because a lot of physics is just doing maths and getting on with questions and solving problems. Mm -hmm. And if you're not interested, you're not going to make much progress because you're not going to apply your brain to it. Whereas at university, the students are interested in the subject. And actually, I'd argue that the subject is far more interesting at university anyway, when you're really starting to get those mathematical tools together to explore, for instance, physics. So it, it just becomes way more interesting because you can say so much more with the tools that you have. So when you're not trying to battle with getting students interested in the subject, you can get straight into doing physics. And for me, that was one of the main reasons why I left teaching, because... I wasn't enjoying physics as a teacher because the children weren't enjoying it. But being back at university, although I teach more maths now than physics, uh, the students are 99% engaged because they want to be there. Uh, they like the subject and 
you can make it interesting for that reason. You don't have to battle. I think you've raised a really interesting point. So I'm just trying to rack my head with the different types of subjects that are taught in schools. And I think... I think there is no larger separation between physics at school... Or sorry, a subject at school and a subject at university than physics. Because of exactly what you just said, the importance of maths and how at school they are separated. So an, a GCSE in physics does not require you to have any GCSE level knowledge of mathematics. And an A level in physics only requires you to have a GCSE level knowledge of maths. And with a lot of maths courses, there are mechanics modules. So in some cases, you might be getting a more university experience of physics when you do a maths A-level, which is kind of strange. And I don't think that difference is in any other subject that I can think of, at least. So for if you were doing history, obviously you need a, a good capability in writing essays and, you know, the English language. But... I would argue because English is so prevalent in all the other classes that you're doing, you're picking up those skills anyway, whereas it's not for maths. It's not like every other subject requires maths like it does English. Yeah, I agree. Uh, things like English, the, the subject, it feels more like a natural progression going from A-level to university. The ideas obviously get more sophisticated but you're not suddenly having to use tools you've never thought you would have to use before. So when you look at physics students in the first year, you'll see a handful of them finding themselves quite shocked in the amount of mathematical content. But that's not just for physics. I know students that go into computer science, uh, engineering, who get surprised by the fact that, oh, I actually have to use this math to do something now uh, because they just didn't expect it. They, th they thought it was going to be like A-level and, and A-level physics is hugely different to what you would do at university. Um, but yeah, so English history, it it becomes increasing sophistication of the ideas that you've already been working on. Otherwise, I realize I'm generalizing a lot there. So um, I take that with a pinch of salt. Yeah, of course. I mean, it, neither of us are history, psychology lecturers. In fact, we should probably get one on to see how big the difference is at some point. Uh, so, so do take that with a grain of salt. A another big difference between university and school is that at schools, you'll probably be teaching a fair amount of younger students. And there's an aspect, depending on how young the students are, of, you know, looking after them, like crowd control in some sense. How true is this? Can you focus on the subject itself a lot more when you're teaching A-level students? For me, absolutely, yes. Uh, I the only, the only part of teaching that I enjoyed doing by the end of my career as a high school teacher was teaching the sixth formers uh, A-level physics because it was very much a case of them turning up and it being about physics all the way through. There was, there was never any trying to convince them that the subject had to be interesting because they, they'd chosen to do it, so they wanted to be there, and if they didn't, they could drop it and leave, and, and they knew that and they understood that. Uh, whereas if you're talk talking about lower years, higher ability classes, if you have set classes, can make a difference in terms of who's interested. Uh, brighter students are typically more interested in general. I, I think there's probably a sort of a feedback loop there. If you're, if you're bright, you understand the subject. Yeah. So it makes more sense and then you enjoy it more. 
uh, and vice versa. Um, but if you've got children that aren't interested, they will find other things to do. It's just the way that the brains of you know young teenagers work. Uh, and then you find yourself dealing with behavior. Uh, personally, I think my my ability to deal with children's behavior wasn't that great. Uh, that that was my my biggest weakness as a teacher, and therefore it, it it did cause a lot of problems for me. And I know it causes a lot of problems for a lot of teachers, and it can be a major reason for leaving the profession. And you you really don't see that um, at university. Uh, occasionally, you get students talking in the back of a lecture theatre. But you can have grown up conversations with them and, you know, telling off an adult really does make a difference. People don't like being told off. So if you don't mind, can we go into that a little bit more? Of course, to become a teacher, you have to do a course. You've got to become accredited. How much of the course itself taught you that specific stuff about looking after and disciplining children? I think it massively depends on the route you take and, and where you do it. Um, but I think... For me, I did um, what's called a postgraduate diploma in education, which is essentially a PGCE, but they make you write more essays. Um, and that was done through a university. And the sessions that we had on the university campus would focus on certain things like basic teaching theory, mm -hmm. uh, assessment, and behavior was a major aspect of that. Um, but of course, it's all theory at the university. And then it's only when you go into your placements where you start to put it into practice. And then it becomes about professional development, other teachers observing your lessons, watching how you deal with behavior and giving you hints and pointers there. So the experience can massively vary depending on essentially who's observing you. And I guess what school you're actually at for those placements. Yeah, I mean, if you go to a grammar school, for instance, you're not going to see as many behavioral problems as if you go to... Uh, a school that is massively struggling um, and doesn't know how to deal with its own behavior and has weak behavior policies. Yes, I guess that's true. Now, yeah, I don't really have too much else to say on that. <laughs> In today's world, remote assessment is now commonplace. It's our duty to ensure that the quality of feedback students receive does not change. Grade enables educators to give fast, effective feedback by analysing student work and previous feedback so you never have to grade the same thing twice. Over time, Grade learns more and more so the savings in time continually increase, while still providing students with high-quality human feedback. I think it's fair to say that the workload on both sides is quite high, but seeing as you've been on both sides, can you tell us the difference? Are they, you know, is there effectively the same amount of work on both sides? Is it in the different shapes or forms? Uh, again, it's a slightly hard question to answer. I'd say that, you know, in, in both roles, I find myself working roughly the same number of hours, but I find myself working at a much nicer pace as a lecturer. Uh, teachers can have, you know, if there's 25 lessons a week, they could be teaching for 21, 22 of those lessons. And then they've got a couple of lessons off, which are supposed to be for planning and marking. And any reasonable person, uh, especially somebody who's starting their first year as a qualified teacher, their NQT, newly qualified teacher year, uh, will not find the time in those free periods to do all the things that they're supposed to do. So either what happens is you take the work home with you and carry on working into the evenings, okay, or you burn out. Right. And unfortunately, that's a reality for a lot of teachers. 
I believe the stats say something along the lines of 40% of new teachers quit in the first five years and the leading cause is the workload. Yeah, uh, for me, it was unbelievable. Um, and you don't get to choose that workload either. You have certain classes and the schools will set policies on how much they want you to mark things. Uh, you have to do your own planning. Uh, and and it's partially due to the funding of the system. There are not enough teachers to be able to teach less classes. If there were more people in the profession, the classes could be spread out more and you could have more headspace to actually get on with the things that you have to do for these children. You have to play triage with the workload uh, and essentially skip tasks that you hope don't get noticed. But often in schools, there's quite a lot of observation and scrutinization of your work. So you actually start to feel stressed that you're not doing enough and it becomes a really vicious cycle. But simply an NQT, in my opinion, is not paid enough money for the workload that they do. Uh, I, I worked out what my hourly rate would be and, and it was pathetic for, you know, for a graduate of of physics with a PhD. I thought I could certainly be earning more money doing other things. Hence why I left, because I was simply overworked and underpaid. So do, do you really think that if we had a lot more funding to be able to put into schools, we could effectively just solve this problem by hiring more people. Uh, I think it would help with the solution. There, there are other aspects to, to the teaching profession that I think people leave for. But if you had more teachers, then you could reduce the workload. Um, there are other parts about the conditions of working, but I think if teachers just have headspace and time to get on with the work that they need to do to do it to the highest of their ability, then I think you'll improve it for a lot of people. So yes, I think it will make a difference. You spent a lot of time talking about schools there when I was talking about workload. I think, do you have a few words to say at university? How does it compare? So at university, lecturers typically teach a couple of courses and there are a few different types of lecturer. There is what we call a three-legged lecturer, uh, which is a traditional one. And they do, it's supposed to be one-third research, one-third teaching and one-third admin. But in practice, it doesn't really work out like that at all. And these lecturers will, their, their primary focus is typically their research. And then teaching is done not as on the side thing. They often take it very seriously, but it's done as, as a part of that job. Uh, I'm what we call a teaching focus lecturer. So I don't have to have a research output um, in my discipline, uh, which means that all my time is focused on teaching. Um, and I've certainly felt like I have had the time to plan my courses uh, into as much detail as I want to be able to do the marking load that I have. And I can set the marking load as well. Uh, and I think I've set a pretty generous marking load for the students. The students get to do a lot of work this year. Um, and I have the time for students' queries. So students can come and... It used to be knock on my door, but this year it sent me an email. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I have the time to do this. I'm doing a full working week and everything fits in and, I, and I'm really happy about it. That sounds really good. I want to actually bounce off a thing I said a few minutes ago and talk about the fact that you need a teaching qualification to teach in schools. Do you need a teaching qualification to teach at university? No. Do you think that's a good idea? So there's a caveat to the no, which is a lot of universities now are putting their teaching staff through courses for teaching. I'm being put through a course in teaching called a postgraduate certificate in higher education, which is a bit like a PGCE, uh, which is what teachers do, but it's aimed at higher education instead. Okay. And 
once that's completed, you become a fellowship of the Higher Education Academy. So more and more higher education staff are getting formal qualifications in their teaching. But it doesn't sound like it's mandatory. No, and, and I got my job as a lecturer without uh, a teaching qualification aimed at higher education, albeit I did have one for my sec- secondary education. I guess, you know, you've got your pulse on the situation. What do you think the makeup of teaching-focused versus three-legged lecturing is, and how do you see that progressing in the future? I think universities are starting to realise more and more that students are important. Not only is income, but educating and nurturing these students is, is super important for, for the entire economy, not just for the universities to make money. So it's being recognised more and more that having staff that just teach uh, can potentially provide higher quality teaching Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they become worth the money because because the students will pay for it. Teaching focused staff just spend a lot more time thinking about their teaching, and therefore they have the opportunity to make it so much better because they have headspace. For me, everything's about headspace and being able to think about what you're doing. If you've got time to think about it, you'll you'll do a much better job. In both cases, it's not just about teaching. Unfortunately, you have to do admin, as with it's the case with any job. So. What does the admin look like on both sides? In teaching, uh, for a, a younger teacher, or I should say somebody who's not been in the profession for a long time, the admin is often marking and uh, analysing student results. Uh, you won't be expected to deal with all the administration of making sure children are in school because you are just one of their many teachers. Okay. At university, the admin can massively vary as well. Uh, but often because you're writing your own courses, there's a lot of administration involved in organizing it, putting it together, getting everything uh, sent to the students in time, bringing the marking load back. So you have a bit more responsibility for certain things as as the person who owns that course. Um, but a lot of the, the, if you like, the HR side or the student side is often done by administrative professionals who are employed separately by the university or by the school to do these things. But also in schools, uh, assistant head teachers, for example, do a lot of that administration themselves. But they get paid more for it. Okay. I think that leads really well on to the next question, as you were just talking about assistant head teachers. What are the possibilities of growth in both professions? In schools, it's fairly well laid out. So you become a teacher and you start off as an NQT. And then you work your way up a national pay scale for a few years, assuming you're in a essentially a state-funded school. And there are six spine points called from M1 to M6, and they represent a salary. And you begin on the first one. And every year, in principle, if you meet your targets for development, then you move up a, one of these spine points on the ladder. So you get paid more. After you've done about six spine points, you get to a point where you can apply for something called threshold, where you have to demonstrate higher ability in teaching and then you move up onto an even higher pay that often comes with extra responsibilities which can be administration it could be head of head of a department it depends on the size of the school really okay and then at that point leadership becomes the the obvious point of growth it could be becoming what we call a lead practitioner who works within their own school to deliver additional development for their teaching staff uh, and externally as well uh, or it could be someone like an assistant head teacher or a deputy head who 
takes a much more active role in running the school, planning the the entire curriculum as as a more overarching general thing. Uh, and then the obvious final point is a head teacher, or if there's a multi academy trust involved, becoming say the CEO of that, um, and that's where the, you know the very large pay scales happen. Interesting. And how does that compare at universities? Universities, it's a slightly more simplified approach uh, in, in some respects, but the opportunities for growth are not so clearly laid out in a sense that you have to meet yearly targets that are well-defined, but it's up to the academic involved to decide what their target should be um, and what looks like obvious growth and development, and then they essentially have to prove themselves within panels for promotion. Uh, lecturers will move on to two types of promotion, either into what's called a senior lecturer or a reader. Typically, the reader is more research focused and the senior lecturer is more teaching focused. And then finally, the promotion after that becomes professor. And that's often head of department that comes along with that or some very, very senior role within a school, a school within a college in a university. Often to move up, so to move to senior lecturer, you have to essentially demonstrate that you are nationally recognised for the work that you do. And then professorship is often demonstrating international recognition for the work that you do. So teaching-focused staff can absolutely move up through this progression. They have to demonstrate that what they're doing is somehow being recognised internationally. So that could be you know, delivering conferences internationally and uh, collaborating with, with other universities around the world. You were talking a lot about running a school as a head teacher, and from the sounds of it, if you know if there is a multi academy trust and you work your way up the ranks of that, it sounds like the higher up you get, the less teaching you do at schools. Is that true? And also, is that true at universities when you work up the ranks? I think at universities it certainly depends. But if you are teaching focused and you are a professor of your subject. In principle, you could still be teaching the same number of modules as a, a newly starting lecturer, simply because you're not expected to be teaching 20 out of 25 slots in, in, a, in a week. Uh, whereas in schools, the administrative load increases significantly when you move up into leadership. So it's very, very difficult for teachers to keep the teaching workload they had before. Uh, and some teachers will refuse to go into leadership because the reason why they're in teaching is because they love teaching so much. So they end up having to move up the lead practitioner pay scale rather than the leadership pay scale uh, in order to progress. So it becomes a slightly different role there for them. But assistant head teachers really have to fight hard to keep their teaching workload and they, they do have to work hard to do it. Right. Uh, let's let's move away from that admin and let's go back to the teaching a little bit. So you're a maths, physics teacher lecturer. <laughs> yep. Right, which traditionally has a lot of whiteboard or blackboard work. How different is that between schools and universities? I think that really comes down to the style of the person teaching it. For me, I have moved away from the whiteboard. I mean, a physical whiteboard, and I now work off a tablet PC, which I, I use as essentially a digital or a virtual whiteboard. Is this before or after everything happened with COVID? It was before but I wasn't using it in remote teaching then. I was just using it as a nice extension to a whiteboard because I could use my handwriting rather than using large writing. I wasn't getting through, you know, a whiteboard pen a week because I could just use my tablet. So it, fe it felt more efficient, but it was easier to change things and erase things and move things around as well a virtual whiteboard. And I guess you can export that, uh, the notes, right, as well for the students, which is quite useful. 
yeah, totally. If, if they wanted, it, it's there to be exported. Uh, but of course, in remote teaching now, the virtual whiteboard for me was was almost seamless moving over. So it, it was very easy in that respect. Teaching in schools, it really depends on the style of the teacher. Okay. But it can often be very PowerPoint based. Uh, it gives the teachers a starting point and it means they can get other, all their ideas in one place in advance. I've always really enjoyed the lectures that I've given where I've not used a PowerPoint and I've just done it freestyle. Could you get a little bit more into that? How come? Why? Uh, it feels more natural. It feels like a conversation between you and the students. And if you can involve the students in a discussion, if it's a small enough group, then the natural evolution of what you're talking about um, from mouth to board feels like it hasn't been planned in advance. And I wouldn't necessarily have everything written down. I'm going to write this and then I'm going to write this and then I'm going to write this. Mm-hmm. But doing things live and essentially you have to hope that you don't make mistakes uh, you have to know your derivations beforehand. Come out really nicely. If I had to make an analogy, it sounds like it's the difference between improv and um, a really well rehearsed performance piece. Yes, it is. Uh, I think so. Yeah, uh, I I like ad libbing things. It feels like you can plan things more in your head, uh, so you spend less time writing down a lesson plan, like a lot of teachers would. Uh, and once you've done it enough, you you actually realise that you're once you're confident, it works really well as a style of teaching. True. I guess it works for you, but it might not work for everyone. Yeah, of course, and and that's the thing that you should always be careful with when you're talking about teaching. That my opinions may not be shared by everybody, and mm-hmm. the things that work for me will not work for everybody else, and vice versa. And we should understand that as as colleagues as well. That things that I do in my practice work for me but they will not work for everybody totally uh and the last thing i want to get to is the fact that this is an edtech podcast so we should talk a little bit about that how is the adoption of technology and software different at universities and at schools i think the difference between schools and universities is that universities are more likely to use software from a slightly experimental point of view. I think schools and universities typically have the same desires and and desired outcomes from these things, which is to decrease the teacher workload while enhancing the experience of the students. So in schools, EdTech is often used as, for example, additional homework setting, which can be automatically marked by a simple system. So the teacher essentially has no extra stuff to do other than set the work. Okay. Uh, which is great for the teacher. Um, we can get into how effective that is for students uh, potentially another time. Um, I, I would argue that it you have to be very, very careful in the way that you set questions to make it useful. Yeah. Um, universities will often use slightly more, if you like, cutting-edge technology, which has not necessarily been rigorously tried and tested but it potentially provides a better experience for the students, but it will require overheads by teaching staff to get their head around, uh, get used to using it and set problems through it. Sure. And do you think the the differences in the financial availability between universities and schools has a role to play there? It sounds like if you have the money, you can try new stuff and see if it works. Whereas if you have a very limited budget, do you really want to be spending that on experimental software? Absolutely. I really think it's that. Uh, In schools, um, software is often bought by heads of department and and leadership in order to potentially reduce workload uh, and improve experience. Whereas at universities, 
you often find that individual lecturers who might not be particularly high up in their own department uh, are championing that software and, and they're bringing it into the university because they think it will make a difference. And of course, in terms of their own career progression, it suits them because it makes them look good. So thank you for your insight, Austin. It's been really valuable. So until next time, it's bye from me. And goodbye from me. See you later.